0: Well, on August 28th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led the March on Washington and delivered his incredibly famous, I Have a Dream speech. Now, when Dr. King delivered that speech, it was a defining moment in American history, as we all know. Two hundred and fifty thousand people, I'm going to say that once more, two hundred and fifty thousand people gathered in Washington, D.C. that day. Now, keep in mind that no invitations were sent out. There was no website back in 1963 to check the date and time of the event. And of course, nobody had a smartphone in their pocket back then to remind them of when the March on Washington was. And yet, a quarter of a million people showed up at the right day, at the right time, and the right moment to make history. How did it happen? How did Dr. King and other civil rights leaders gather that kind of audience? The better question is not how, the better question is why. W-H-Y, why? Back in 2011, and so this would have been 11 years ago, um, Simon Sinek, maybe some of you recognize that name, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, Simon Sinek is a leadership guru, and he wrote a book. It was a New York Times bestseller entitled, it's up here in the monitor, Start with the Why, Start with Why. And in that book, Simon Sinek reminds us that Dr. King had a remarkable ability. He had this incredible ability of sharing not just what he believed, but why he believed it. He knew that if enough people were convinced that civil rights were important, they would join him in the cause. And obviously, he was correct. 250,000 people showed up in Washington, D.C. in 1963, but they didn't show up for Dr. King as charismatic, and likable, as good of a preacher as he was, they didn't show up for Dr. King. Instead, they showed up because they believed what Dr. King believed. Simon Sinek goes on to say that Dr. King delivered that day his I have a dream speech, not his I have a plan speech. In other words, he didn't share the what or the how of the civil rights movement. He shared the why. Why civil rights are so important, why we should all be concerned about civil rights, Simon Sinek goes on to say in this book that all leaders, this includes pastors, this includes lay leaders and churches, all leaders who want to inspire action must start with the why. Why is a question of the heart. When people are committed to the why, they'll be encouraged to take action. And I was thinking about that this week as I was contemplating the sermon that I'm about to deliver. Uh, Many of you know that we're in the midst of a sermon series here at Asbury called All of Who We Are. It's a four-part series. And in this four-part series, we're talking about what it means to give Jesus not some of who we are, not most of who we are, not the majority of who we are, not a lot of who we are, but instead what it means to give Jesus all of who we are and not holding anything back. And in doing this, we've been exploring uh, what we're calling the four T's of discipleship. The four T's of discipleship. What are the four T's of discipleship? Time, talent, treasure, trust. Time, talent, treasure, trust. We don't want to hold back on any one of these T's. Otherwise, we won't be giving our whole selves over to Jesus through the church. So far in these messages, we have talked about time. We have talked about talent. And so today, this morning, we come to the third T. Treasure. Can you all say this with me? Treasure. Treasure. In other words, yes, money, finances, which is always everybody's favorite topic, amen? I mean, didn't you just come here today because you were so excited to hear a sermon about money? Well, inspired by what Simon Sinek says in his book, I'm gonna try to approach this topic from a different angle because I realize that sermons on money, I'm not naive, I've been a pastor now for 10 and a half years, I realize that sermons on money don't tend to be everybody's favorite sermon. Let's be real about that. They prompt us to be on guard, to get defensive. After all, money is a sensitive topic, isn't it? I think I included a study in the Sermon Notes section from Wells Fargo that said that in many ways, money is a more sensitive topic than religion, politics, and even death. Uh, Money is a sensitive topic, especially as we head into what is very well gonna be a recession. Especially as we've been dealing with rising costs. We've been dealing with those as of late as a country. But at the same time, money's an important topic. What we do with our money matters, has spiritual implications. Jesus talked about money on numerous occasions. Lauren shared with us that verse from Matthew 6:21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, Jesus talked about money. The rest of the Bible talks about money. We don't want to ignore this topic as Christians. We don't want to shy away from it. Uh, we don't want to push it aside. We do want to address it. And so in addressing this topic, what I'm going to try to do today is I'm going to try to answer an important question. But before I reveal that question to us, Let me say in passing here that if you don't consider yourself to be a part of Asbury United Methodist Church, in other words, you're not a member here or you're not a regular attendee here, first of all, welcome. We are glad that you're here. You will always have a home at our church. I would be so honored to serve as one of your pastors. Second of all, if you don't consider yourself to be a part of Asbury, you can feel a sense of relief right now. You are off the hook with this message. Don't you just feel the weight being lifted right now as I'm saying this? You are under no obligation to fulfill the call to action in this sermon. This sermon is not directed at you. Hopefully it will be one day in the future, but probably not right now today. Instead, this sermon is directed at those of us who, like me and like my family, consider Asbury United Methodist Church to be our congregational home who are trying to live out our commitment to Jesus Christ, because we always live out our commitment to Jesus in community, who are trying to live out our commitment to Jesus Christ through the context of this church. The question that I'm going to try to answer today, as best I can, by God's grace, is why we should give generously to the church. Why we should give generously to the church. If you've been around churches for a while, and I know that many of you have been around churches for a while, You've probably heard your fair share of sermons on generosity before. Amen? How it's better to give than to receive. You've probably also heard a plethora of sermons that talk about concepts like stewardship and tithing, how much money to give. And listen, all that is important. It has a place. And we'll talk about some of that other stuff today in passing. But sometimes when we focus on these other things, the why gets lost along the way. Why we should give generosity to the church. I mean, let's be honest, the church is not the only organization asking for money, is it? The church is not the only organization asking for money. How many of you have ever received a letter from a college asking for money? At the last service, I said that, and somebody came up to me, and she said, yeah, I get letters from colleges that I didn't attend, that my children didn't attend, asking for money. Colleges ask for money. Schools ask for money. Charitable organizations ask for money. Radio stations ask for money. And then you come to worship on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. on November 13th of 2022, and you find out at Asbury that the sermon is going to be about money, where's the exit? It's too late. Ushers, if you would, please lock the doors. I'm just kidding. You can leave at any time. I hope that you won't, but you are free to go. Seriously, though, we are bombarded with people asking for money all the time. And I'm assuming that you have a finite amount of resources like I do. There are lots of great organizations out there. You can't possibly give to all of them. And I'm not trying to knock down what other organizations are doing because they're doing good work. Many of them are. So why in the midst of all these requests for financial support should we give our hard-earned money to the church? I'm going to tell you why. And the reason is pretty simple, straightforward, but oftentimes we miss it. My hope is, after hearing this sermon, you will never think twice about giving to Asbury again. Who knows? You may be inspired to give for the first time, or you may be encouraged to give more. Hearing the why just might change your whole view of the church. So let's dive in. This is going to be a really simple one-point sermon. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, um, we've been looking at chapter 12 of that letter, and we said last time that in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us his ecclesiology. Can you say that word with me? ecclesiology. Now you all sound like seminary graduates, theological professors, biblical scholars, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a really fancy word that basically means the study of the church, that Paul gives us his understanding of the church, how the church functions, how the church works, how the church operates. Well, in the midst of that whole conversation, Paul makes this really remarkable statement that we oftentimes skip over. Check out what he says here In verse 27, this this statement gives me goosebumps. It's so incredible what Paul says here. He says, all of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. In a nutshell, Paul is telling us that we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this world. That the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead... Works in us to accomplish ministry. That we are the hands and feet of Jesus, that we are the body of Jesus, and Jesus is the head of the church. And folks, when we understand and grasp this point and the depth of who we are, we'll begin to realize that Asbury United Methodist Church is not a business. Whenever somebody says that the church is a business, oh, it just really rubs me the wrong way. We're not a business, we're not a charitable organization we're not a social club, we're not a recreation center, we are a church. We are part of the body of Jesus Christ. That we are God's chosen vessel, chosen instrument to bring healing and hope and transformation to a broken world. That we are God's agent to bring about reconciliation in the world. So going back to the question, why should we give generously to the church? Why should we give our hard-earned money to the church? Here's the answer. Because the church is God's best hope for the world. I believe this in the depth of who I am. It's the reason I became a pastor. I really do believe in my heart of hearts that the church is God's best hope for the world. I get defensive when people start knocking on the church. Jesus died for the church. He gave his life for the church. And now he empowers us by his spirit to carry out the work that he started when he came among us 2,000 years ago. And history shows that when God does anything significant in this world, listen to me, God does not do it through politics. I know we just had an election. I know that many of you voted. I voted too. That's a good thing. But when God does something significant, he doesn't do it through politics. He doesn't do it through the Republican Party, the Democratic Party. He doesn't do it through new fads or secular institutions. He does it through the church through ordinary people like you and me who worship and follow Jesus Christ. Now, some of us might be sitting in our pew right now or worshiping online and thinking, hold on a second, Chris. How can you say that the church is God's best hope for the world? I mean, what about all the bad that the church has done over the years? Maybe some of you have family members who are going to bring up this point at Thanksgiving as you're enjoying your mashed potatoes and your stuffing and your turkey. Hey, you go to church, you go to Asbury. What about all the bad stuff that the church has done over the years? Maybe they'll bring up points like the Salem witch trials, the crusades, the Inquisition, or just the general hypocrisy and mean-spiritedness of some Christ followers. So given all the bad that the church has done, how can I stand up here today And say with integrity that the church is God's best hope for the world. Well, let me say that I'm not trying to ignore or downplay all the bad that's been done in the name of the church. Because unfortunately, and this is the sad truth, the church has done some bad things over the years that we need to repent of and ask forgiveness for. But at the same time, the church is still the greatest thing that God has going for him. The church is still a part of God's redemptive plan. And that when God does something significant or profound, God typically does it through the church. For example, and I know that many of you already know this, probably all of you know this, the church was at the forefront of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr., a person whom so many of us admire and respect in our nation, he was a Christian minister, wasn't he? Listen to what Dr. King said at one point in a magazine interview. He said, in the quiet recesses of my heart, I am fundamentally a clergyman, a Baptist preacher. It is impossible to understand, and scholars of Dr. King will tell you this, it is impossible to understand Dr. King without understanding his deep involvement in the church. The church made him who he was. But beyond the civil rights movement, the church has built hospitals, hasn't it? How many of you have ever received medical care at a church-affiliated hospital? Probably a lot of you have. I was born at a church-affiliated hospital, Holy Cross Hospital, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The church has built hospitals. The church has built schools. The church has built colleges. I attended a church-affiliated college. The church has been behind education. The church has built soup kitchens, children's homes. The church has advocated for prison reform, for the proper treatment of migrants. Mother Teresa was a product of the church. Is the church perfect? No. I'll be the first to tell you, it's not perfect. Do we sometimes mess up and get it wrong? Absolutely, definitely. But at our best, by God's grace, we are the hands and feet of the risen Jesus in this world. We are the body of Christ in action. In fact, we've said throughout the sermon series that the body of Christ is Paul's preferred metaphor for the church. Uh, That's the metaphor that he uses more than any other metaphor. But there's there's another metaphor that Paul uses for the church in the New Testament. Not quite as frequently as the body of Christ, but there is another one that he uses. Do you know what it is? The bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Check out what he says here. This is from Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. As the scriptures say, and he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way what? Christ and the church are one. Christ and the church are one. In other words, Christ and the church are as close as two people are in marriage. You can't get one without the other. Just like you can't get me without Amanda, or Amanda without me, you can't get Jesus without the church. As we said last time, as much as we sometimes try to separate them, Christ and the church are inseparable. They're inseparable. And Christ calls us to support the church, not with some of who we are, not with most of who we are, not with a lot of who we are. Christ calls us to support the church, his body, his bread in this world, with all of who we are. And yes, that includes our finances. It does. There's no getting around this. So what does this look like practically on the ground for us as everyday people? Well, for a man in me, and listen, I share this for no other reason other than be transparent with you because I believe that you deserve transparency from those who lead you. For a man and me, and this is something that we talked about after we got married, this includes giving... of our annual income, our gross annual income, and the reason we do this is because we just have this conviction that God gets paid before anybody else gets paid, over to God. We give 10% of that over to God through the church because we believe in the concept of tithing that's outlined in the Old Testament. Now, I realize as I share that that some of us may not feel led to tithe or perhaps we uh, are not in a position where we can necessarily tithe and listen, there's no judgment here, right? Uh, I don't want to be super legalistic about this. But here's what I would encourage us to do. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. Be intentional about this. Make it planned. Be regular. Make it consistent. Perhaps you're not in a position where you can give 10%, but perhaps you could start by giving 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%. And then maybe next year, as you're working toward a tithe, give a percentage more and a percentage more and a percentage more. Recognizing that when you do, God will take your financial resources, whatever it is that you offer to God through the church, and God will use those financial resources in combination with the financial resources of others to carry out his work in the world. That's why we give to Asbury United Methodist Church. We give, why? So the work of Jesus Christ can continue. We give so the work of Jesus Christ can continue. And the work of Jesus Christ does continue every single day through our church. Folks, I wish that you could see what I see as the pastor. Because God has given me a front row seat into how God is using this church to be in ministry in this world. When a couple comes up to me and says, Chris, our marriage was falling apart. We were just about to toss in the towel, but then we found Asbury, and God used Asbury to strengthen our marriage, to draw us closer and closer as a couple. I say to myself, this is why we give. When somebody comes up to me and they say, Chris, I want to make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior for the very first time. I want to be baptized. I say to myself, This is why we give. When I walk in the North area, and I see letters from children at one of our area schools thanking us for the school supplies that we gave so that they can have a good school year, I say to myself, this is why we give. When I see children on our campus being tutored so that they can achieve their God-given potential, I say to myself, this is why we give. When I see support groups that meet on our campus and we have lots and lots of support groups that meet throughout the week, when I see support groups that meet on our campus helping people to find sobriety and a life free of addiction, I say to myself, this is why we give. When a candidate for ministry like Alina Sacedo who gave our announcements is supported to answer God's call, I say to myself, this is why we give. When somebody sends me an email and I've gotten these emails and they say, Chris, I'm a homebound person. I'm a shut-in. I can't make it to worship. I don't leave the house very much, but you know what? Asbury's online presence has been such a gift to me. It's helped me to stay connected. The the live streaming of the worship services, morning prayer that's done throughout the week, uh, during the weekdays, what a gift that is. I say to myself, this is why we give. When I see children, laughing and dancing and skipping along as they're running off to Sunday school like my own children, I say to myself, this is why we give. When I see the bikes parked outside the youth building on Wednesday evening, representing the students, the youth who are inside, connecting to God and each other and growing spiritually, I say to myself, this is why we give. When people discover their worth and their value in God, and the fact that in Jesus Christ, God is inviting them into a relationship with himself, God is offering them new life, I say to myself, this is why we give. We give so the work of Jesus Christ can continue. And every single day, the work of Jesus Christ does continue here at this local church, as it has through local churches throughout time. The great 20th century preacher, Fred Craddock, you've probably heard me mention that name before. He taught preaching classes for a number of years. Uh, He has since passed away, but he taught preaching classes at Candler School of Theology, which is a part of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, Fred Craddock says that one time, uh, he and his wife went on a short vacation to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Anybody ever visited Gatlinburg, Tennessee? Yeah, some of you have. Well, they found this really nice restaurant overlooking the mountains, just had this incredible view. And Craddock was so excited to enjoy a private meal with his wife, no interruptions, just the two of them together. So the server came by, took their order, and they were waiting for their food to come out. Well, out of the corner of his eye, Craddock noticed that there was this distinguished-looking white-haired gentleman And he was moving about from table to table. He was being social. He was interacting with all the customers. And Craddock could tell that the guy probably didn't work for the restaurant. He was a guest there himself. And so he said to his wife, I really hope that guy doesn't come over here. He didn't want the man to intrude on their privacy. But sure enough, what happened? He came over. Where are you folks from? He asked in a really excited way. Oklahoma, Craddock said. Just gave a one-word answer, abrupt, terse, hoping the guy would get the message and move along. Oklahoma, he went on. That's a splendid state, I hear, though I've never been there myself. Tell me, what do you do for a living? It's always interesting when somebody asks a pastor what they do for a living. And he said, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. Oh, you're a preacher, are you? I got a story I got to tell you. And with that, he pulled out a chair and he sat right down. Craddock groaned inwardly. Oh, goodness. Here's another preacher's story. It seems like everybody has one that they just have to share. The man stuck out his hand, and he said, my name is Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper. I was born not too far from here, just across the mountains. When I was born, my parents weren't married. In fact, I didn't know who my father was. And people back then were very mean about that kind of thing in the small community where I lived, and the mountains. When I started school, my classmates had a nickname for me. It was not a very nice nickname. During lunch and at recess, I would go off by myself because the taunts of my classmates cut so deeply. I didn't have any friends. Nobody would talk to me or hang out with me. What was even worse was on Saturday afternoons my mom would take me to the market and people would point at me and they would stare and I could hear them whispering behind my back making guesses as to who my father was in that community. It was so degrading and embarrassing and humiliating. I never liked going to church because whenever I went to church people would say to me who are you? Who's your father? Whose boy are you? I didn't have an answer. Well, when I was about 12 years old, there was this new pastor who came to the church. And I wanted to hear his sermons. So I came up with this plan. I decided that I would slip in late, and then I would slip out early during the last song. By the way, that's not a new idea. People have been doing that for a long time. (laughs) They continue to do it. Well, one time he said, the pastor preached the sermon so fast and they skipped the last hymn. They went straight to the benediction. He said the benediction. Before I knew it, I was caught up with the crowd. I thought, oh no. And so I just put my head down. I started heading toward the door. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. But just before I made it to the door, I felt this big hand on my shoulder. And I turned around, and it was the preacher. He was a large man, and he was looking down on me. And he said, wait a minute, son. I've seen you around here, but I don't think I've met you yet. Who are you? Who do you belong to? Who's your father? He said, I felt this huge weight come upon me and this black cloud circle over me. My heart was racing. My mouth was dry. There was a lump in my throat. I didn't know what to say. I thought, oh, no. Here it comes. Even the preacher, the man of God, is going to put me down in front of all these people. But before I could say anything, that pastor smiled this big smile of acceptance and recognition, and he said, wait a minute, son. I know exactly who you are. I can see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. And then he slapped me across the back and he said, young man, you have got a great inheritance. You better go and claim it. The man looked at Craddock, and I've shared the story, by the way, before, and it always gets me. The man looked at Craddock, and he said, that was the single most important sentence anybody has ever said to me in my entire life. From then on, whenever anybody would ask me in that community who my father was, I would simply say, I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. The man stood up. He went to the next table. That was that. Craddock looked at his wife and he said, Ben Hooper, where have I heard that name before? Why is that so familiar? And he realized something. Just before he was born, the state of Tennessee in the early 1900s had twice elected to serve as governor a man who was born out of wedlock, which back in the early 1900s was practically unheard of. That man's name and we have his picture up here in the monitor, was Ben Hooper. Where did Ben Hooper hear that life-changing comment? Where did he discover his true identity as a child of God? In a local church in the mountains of Tennessee, I'll say it one more time, the church is God's best hope for the world. When we give to the church, it's not about keeping the lights on, It's not about paying salaries. It's not about funding programs. It's not about maintaining a building. It's about accomplishing the work of Jesus Christ in our midst. At Asbury, it's about fulfilling the mission that God has given us, which is to know the love of Jesus Christ and to pass it on to every single person, including those like Ben Hooper. So give generously to the church. Give sacrificially to the church. Don't simply entrust Jesus with some of who you are. And trust Jesus with all of who you are, including your treasure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I know that the church is not perfect and that there is much that we need to repent of and ask forgiveness for. So please, God, forgive us when we have not lived up to your ways. But God, remind us that at our best, when we are open to the movement of your Holy Spirit, that incredible things happen through the church, that young people, actually people of every age, discover who they are in you, and that in Jesus Christ, you have designed them for a relationship with yourself. Thank you so much for Asbury United Methodist Church, for all the work that you have done here, Over the years, since 1959, I believe, when our church was founded, the work that continues now in 2022 that will continue in 2023 by your grace, please help us to give sacrificially and generously. Use whatever it is that we offer in conjunction with other people's gifts so that the work of Jesus Christ does continue in our midst. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, and in his name we give. Amen.